And all those who are called to holiness say amen. Amen. Please be seated. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear among the sons of men. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Thou, O Lord, will keep them. Thou will preserve him from this generation forever. He has indeed uh, preserved his word uh, for us, his people, that we might rejoice in him and his acts, and I would encourage you, uh, I would simply reiterate, actually, that you can't do that unless you understand God's word in a growing way. So give attention as the word is preached, uh, and in doing so, um, be a keeper of God's word in your heart and in your life. Amen. invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 1, as well as in your bulletin, the outline. The book of Malachi is addressing the issue of mechanistic Christianity, or really the, the dangers therein. It is describing um, God's warning. It's, it's, it, this book contains a series of warnings from God to his people who have, in essence, grown bored with God, but grown bored with Christianity. And, uh, and so it's a really great book for you and me, um, as, as we have seen, as we'll continue to, to see, um, because we live in that time where it's really easy to grow bored with the things that we have been doing. As Paul says, rejoice, Lord, always. Again, I always say rejoice. It's not hard for me to say it again. Um, you know, we need to hear it because it's so easy for us to grow cold. So Malachi is, is, is one such book in the Bible that addresses that. We're in verses 6 through 14, the second message that God gave to his people. Um, and so we'll look at that this morning. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. So let me invite you to stand together with me at the reading of his word. Hear now the word of our king. A son, a son honors his father, and a servant his master. That if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised thy name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled thee? And that you say the table of the Lord is, be, is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. From the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great 
among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who is a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among all nations. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of having your word in our laps this day open before us. The privilege of being able to read your word and, and eat your word and consume it. Father, what a privilege. We, we pray, O oh Lord, you bless this time. Give us eyes to see. Holy Spirit, rest heavily upon us. Open our eyes. Enable us, O oh Lord, to, to understand this, your word, to feast upon it, to be built up and encouraged in you. So, Lord, we pray, bless the preaching of your word. Give us unction and power as we, as we listen unto your glory and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As image bearers, our chief end, the highest calling that could ever be placed upon any person is the worship of God. Isaiah 43, 6b says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. God created man to worship him. And that is why, though we have fallen when he recreates us or redeems us in Jesus Christ, the end is one and the same as his original purpose. John 4 says, um, speaking of, of um, or this is Christ, but an hour is coming and now he is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So redemption hasn't changed that chief end. Now, if that is indeed our chief end, if that is the essence of why God made us to glorify him, it stands to to reason that this is a big deal for us. Wherein we fall from this, it will have an impact upon us. Wherein we fulfill it, it will have an impact. Let me give you an example of that. Psalm 115 is a psalm written to describe the folly of idolatry. And then it begins in verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. And it goes on for four verses describing how silly idols are. So it says their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. And then it climaxes with these words. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Brothers and sisters, you will become what you worship. Because of the way God made us, we have been made to exalt, to glorify, to worship. We are worshiping people. And ironically, whatever we worship, we will begin to resemble it in how we live, how we think, what we call victory, what we call a burden, the things that move us, the things that don't, the things that bother us will all be impacted by what you and I worship. We see that in Malachi this morning. 
Malachi, you know, is written in between, in the valley. You know, there are very few passages or books in the Bible written in the valley, in between. What we mean by that is in between the two, two um, epical redemptive eras, right? We go from the old covenant with, with, with all the prophets and the whole bit, and yet the nation ending in 586, and, and now God's people are in this lull between the Old Testament and the New where God once again will bless His people with Jesus Christ and a massive amount of revelation. Yet in between, it's so easy to grow bored. It's so easy, brothers and and sisters, to grow bored with just God's Word. That's all that they had at this time. Miracles were done, right? We didn't have these miracle maxes going around performing great signs, whether they be from Egypt or whether they be from God's people. And I'm not suggesting that the prophets were miracle maxes. But brothers and sisters, this is that time when prophets were gone. Except Malachi. Malachi's the last prophet. And so God comes to his people and he speaks to them and addressing an issue, which brothers and sisters, that's why I love this book so much. It's where you and I live. We're from, we're, we, are, we are post the first coming of Jesus Christ. We're in the last days, but brothers and sisters, we're waiting for the second coming. We live now in that in-between time. The time where it's so easy, where all we have is God's word. All we have is God's worship. All we have is fellowshipping with God via his word. Now, that may sound like I'm saying it negatively. It's not. It's glorious. But we're at that time where if we're going to grow bored, if we're going to, to, to conform to a form of godliness and deny its power, now is that time. And that's where God's people were in Malachi's day. They were living at a time where it was difficult, just like our day in many respects. And so they began harboring thoughts like, you know what? God just seems to bless the wicked people. So be wicked and you'll be blessed. All right? Their hearts have, are growing cold. Worship. What about worship? That's where we're on first. Um, you, know, you know, guys, it's not that big of a, of a deal. Um, we can do it this way. Um, so God comes with Malachi. And the first thing he does... Malachi 1, 2 through 5, is to assure his people of his love. In other words, brothers and sisters, if we've been made to worship God, and what we worship will determine what we do, the first thing he does, he, 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 he sets the record straight. Brothers and sisters, you are worshiping a being who, is not, who does not need to be placated. A being who is not up there as the ant bully. You are worshiping a God, a being who loves you and has loved you. Who has poured his life out for you. So he starts there. And that naturally leads then to the very next topic, which is the topic of worship. How, um, um, uh, 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 specifically, as I've written it here, despising the God of our worship. It's so easy in between. It's so easy in this valley to begin taking God lightly. And when we do that, a mechanistic Christianity, taking God lightly, growing bored with God, bored with his word, it's easy for that to have a massive impact upon our worship. And that's what we're dealing with uh, today. Um, So brothers and sisters, let's look at the dangers of mechanistic uh, Christianity, specifically as it comes to the worship of God and the, how we view God. And we, I'm going to begin by looking with you, first off, at the core issue. I want to step back from this book, from this ch- uh, section, just one step, 
And notice that while you read it with me, this is about worship. But in between the lines, it is as much about worship, if not more, it's about the character of God and God's people's view of Him. Notice with me verse 6, 8, 9, 10, 11, 13, and 14, all reference in nine verses, seven of which reference this title, the Lord of Hosts. Man, this is a huge emphasis here. The Lord of Hosts is one of those majestic titles that describes God as this being who is the captain of a host of armies, the Lord of a host of armies. And those armies, those countless hosts, are angels. It references his majesty, his awesomeness, his glory, such that God's people, if they could just wrap their heads around and keep their heads wrapped around, the fact that their God is the Lord of hosts, they wouldn't consider famine or warfare or the threat to be a burden. What would burden them most would be God. They would be as Matthew 10, 28, Christ exhorted, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the idea behind the Lord of hosts. On top of that, would you notice verse 14, we read this phrase, a great king. Four times do we read that God is great. Seven times the Lord of hosts. Four times in these nine verses, God is great. Now what's significant about that, that he's a great king, is that God's people have just lived through some of the greatest kings in the ancient world. I wouldn't say they're the greatest, but Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Darius, those are great kings. And God comes to these people who are now familiar with great kings, intimately familiar. Read Daniel, read many of those books. And what you find is God saying, I am greater than them. You may fear letters being written to Xerxes. Remember that last time or a couple of weeks back, uh, the context that the Samaritans were writing letters to Xerxes saying, man, get, get, get these people, mentioning uh, Jewish people by name. Brothers and sisters, God is the great king. He's the king of kings. You need not fear Xerxes. You need not fear a man or a plague or a, or a natural disaster or a bad guy. You've got God as your God. That's what must drive us. It's very clear throughout this. And because of that, brothers and sisters, the focus here is on worship. Notice with me, verse 6. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my respect? The word honor is the word kavad, kaved. It's the word for weightiness. God is a God because of who he is. We, are, we, are, we, we, we must respond by worshiping this awesome God who is heavy of substance. And what that means simply is this. Isaiah 64, 4. For from of old they have not heard nor perceived by ear a God like thee who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. Our God, unlike the false gods, the no gods of the nations, our God, if you pray to him, he acts. Our God is not a God, one half of which is made into an icon. The other half we burn in a fire and then pray to the icon to protect us from a fire. That's not our God. Our God acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. Our God is a God of substance. That's what the word glory, kaved, substance mean. It means God acts tangibly in this world. So we're to give him glory. We're to respond to who he is and worship him. And then notice the next word, respect, morah. The primary word for reverence in the Old Testament is yireh. This word has as its root, 
yure, but it's but but in addition to it, yure means reverence, awe, worship. More awe refers to the emotional response of trembling, as in First Deuteronomy twenty six. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and a, and an outstretched arm with great terror. That's the idea. This is referencing the majesty of God's holiness. The majesty of God's awe. Remember what R.C. Sproul wrote in his ministry? He, he, he eloquently described the holiness of God and man's, pre- man's response, God's people's response when in his presence. He wrote in, in a connection to Christ's calming of the storm. Quote, we see a strange pattern unfolding here. That the storm and raging sea frightened the disciples is not surprising. But once the danger passed and the sea was calm, it would seem that their fear would vanish as suddenly as the storm. It didn't happen that way. Now that the sea was calm, the fear of the disciples increased. In the power of Christ, they met something more frightening than they ever met in nature. They were in the presence of the holy. That's this word. God's saying, if I am who I am, why isn't there respect? Why isn't there awe? Why are you not living your lives on a daily basis Coram Deo in the presence before the face of this awesome being. And then verse 11, would you notice, we read, for from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. God says that four times in this passage. This is the bent, this is the future, this is the course of redemptive and world history. Everything is moving towards the culmination of that day where every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this passage is is, um, um, referencing in between uh, the lines this great and glorious God that we, God's people, have. The brothers and sisters, by way of note, 6 through 14, is directed directly at the priest, the leadership of God's people, as is the next section, chapter 2, 1 and 5. This is not to the general people. This is to the priests. These are to the ones who, ha- who were entrusted with God's word to teach it. This is to the one who was given the responsibility of the divine worship. This is to the ones who have been given the responsibility of caring for the flock of, of God. And he looks at them and he says, this is who I am. This is who you know I am. But would you notice what happened in the in-between times to these priests? Temples have been built now for 30 plus years. City walls are built. Things have gone back to normal. The worship service is in full bloom. And they have grown bored with God. Would you notice the words used to describe these men? Verse 6b, where is my respect? And then he says, O priests who despise my name. The word for despise is the opposite of glory. Okay, it is, it's not the general word for taking God's name in vain, which also means the opposite of glory, which means likeness. This word dis- despise is used four times in this passage. So you got God on the one hand, and you got God's people responding, these leaders so familiar with God that they're now beginning to despise. And the word despise doesn't mean hate. It means to take lightly. Theological word book, put it this way. The basic meaning of the root is to accord little worth to something. While this action may or may not include overt feelings of contempt or scorn, 
the biblical usage indicates that the very act of undervaluing something or someone implies our contempt. So these priests, in light of that God, you would expect God's people, God's priests, God's leaders, would, their heart would be burning for the Lord. Instead, we read, they're taking God lightly. They're in the in-between time. Yesterday is the same as today, and tomorrow will be the same as yesterday. Or uh, uh, today. N- nothing's changed. God, God is, God's not holy. He is, but he's not. I mean, we, academically speaking, he's holy, and we can debate that. But in practicality, brothers and sisters, it means nothing to our lives. That's what the priests were. They were despising. And then would you notice the next phrase? They were profaning. We read what they were profaning, which in the Hebrew means to pierce, slay or wound. They were, they were profaning the name of the Lord. Is that incredible? They were profaning his name. That's in verse 12. That means they were piercing, they were hurting his name. And it brings us back to Romans 2.24, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. They were hurting God's character, the, the reputation of God amongst God's people. And amongst foreigners, because of how they were so lightly treating God, then would you notice they were disdainfully sniffing at the call of God when it came to his worship. To disdainfully sniff is to have someone come to you and say, you know, we're not worshiping God the way Leviticus tells us. And their response is, really, does it matter? That's me. So so hear that. That's disdainfully sniffing. Does it matter? Whether we worship God with, with these animals or those, do you think he cares? I mean, look at our lives. Do you think it really matters? I mean, we've been offering these for so long, there's been no thunderbolt. Guys, I mean, brother, I've shared the gospel with people. I've had one person one time tell me, you know what? I will believe your God if, if, if right now he, he smites me with a thunderbolt. Smite me, God. And I'm here to say he didn't, because he did. I'd probably be dead, because I was right next to him. Okay? God didn't smite him. Brothers and sisters, you know, we can sit here all day long and discuss all these glorious things written about God, but it's just academic. I mean, is God really holy? Is he really caring? Is he really love? Come on, brothers and sisters. That was the mindset of the priest, and it spread like gangrene, and it impacted the people of God. Now, How does this, that's mechanistic uh, Christianity. You've got this God, and these priests have grown bored with Jesus. Now, how did that translate to their worship? Notice with me now verses 7 through 8 and following. Second point B. 7a, speaking of the leaders of God's people, the priests, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled thee? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. Now, we're not talking about the Lord's Supper here, the table of the Lord. Table of the Lord references the tables that are on the north side of the altar burnt offerings. When you brought your animal to be sacrificed, the first thing you would do is they would bring you to the north side of the altar burnt offerings where you'd place your lamb on a table. There the lamb would be inspected for impurities and is it acceptable before God? And once it's viewed as acceptable, you then would, would slit its throat, blood would be drained, and then they'd, the priest would take over. That's what's being talked about here. The table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Skip down to verse 12. But you, in the Hebrew, emphatic, you, you priests, priests, 
You're profaning it, my name. And that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. Brothers and sisters, it's not clear, but I think it's more clear than, than maybe I just said. But it's not black and white that these priests were, were physically saying, the table of the Lord is to be despised. In fact, if you read enough 7 and 8, read 7 8, 7 8, 7 8, it becomes clear that 8 is the explanation of what they were saying. In other words, they weren't verbally saying, yeah, you know, let's just defile God's table. They, were, they thought they were worshiping right. They, what they're doing was handed down to them, which was handed down to them, which was handed down to them. And, and so they're, they're, they're along a long line of priests who've been worshiping this way. That's how we've always done it. And then God comes to Malachi and says, you're despising my name. And their response is, how are we despising? We're doing what you called us to do as priests. What do you mean we're despising? You despise my table. You say it's this. How are we doing that? What are you talking about? And how you're acting. So the idea here is, is that their worship was proclaiming a message. It's the words of Baxter, really. Uh, Richard Baxter talks about in his thing on pastoral care that, you know, it is not very long b- before uh, the body of Christ starts having, having um, boredom, or, or, or if you will, yeah, boredom in their walks um, after the shepherds find their, 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 their walk with God becoming bored. Right? It's, it's a, a, a biblical principle. As the leaders go, so go the people. And, and these, these men, they were proclaiming a message to, to the body of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how you worship God. It doesn't. In fact, let's make it easier for you. It's not a big deal. Brothers and sisters, I didn't read this anywhere. This is of my own thinking. As I've meditated upon them, I know that this was written at a time when there, where, where, where food was sparse. Read Nehemiah 5. Food was not, was not easy to, to come by. So I can imagine these well-intentioned priests realizing, what do you do, by way of note, what do you do with a blind lamb? You kill it. It's diseased. What do you do with, right? You don't, you don't eat those. You kill them. So why not, during this time of famine and difficulty, why not offer the, the, the diseased to God, he won't care, and let you have the good animals that you'd normally offer to eat. Now, I may be completely full of hot air here. I don't know. But I can imagine a situation where a priest would actually do this. They're doing it because they're trying to help God's people, perhaps. I don't know why. We don't know why. But this we do know. They're compromising the worship of God. And that, if you look at Leviticus, rather blatantly, rather egregiously. In fact, brothers and sisters, it's so bad that... Or it's so, what's the word? It's so subtle and so bad that's occurred over time. What they're accepting is normative and not a big deal. In any other realm in their life would be a big deal. Notice with me verse 8. When you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame for sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? That word in the Hebrew is the word for a Persian governor. According to the law of the Persians, the governor's uh, uh, station in the lands where they're stationed were to be supported in part from the offerings of the local population. If you read Nehemiah chapter 5, Nehemiah made a big deal to say, I didn't take that. He was a governor of Persia. I didn't take that. I did not take the offering that, that other governors took. Okay? So he says, why not, why not offer what you're offering to me to the governor? And they would have never done that. They wouldn't have offered a diseased animal to the governor. That could have been cause for imprisonment, if not worse. So it's amazing. 
horizontally, their standard for what's acceptable to honor and, 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 and give refer, a, a deference to somebody was a whole lot different, higher than what they were doing for God. How so? Because, brothers and sisters, we just saw it in their hearts. They're despising God. God, God, is, God is up there. He's not down here in this service, brothers and sisters. Now, we can say all day long in our bulletin, yes, he's here. and We can talk about, biblically speaking, he's near to us. But honestly, when's the last time you saw fire in this place, right? Come on. So, so we might say, look, worship's a little boring. How are we going to spice it up? Right? That's in essence what these Amazingly, verse 9, this is what's the, the, the biggest crime. I don't know the biggest. A big crime here, verse 9. And that is they lapsed back into rebuilding what was once destroyed. Notice verse 9. But now will you not entreat God's favor? That, that sounds possible, a positive, right? It's not. It's negative. Favor means placation. Will you not placate God that he may be gracious to you? I mean, that's what your worship has been done. It, it has boiled down to. Everything that you're doing, you're trying to placate God. And the good animals didn't placate them, so it doesn't matter what we offer, we offer the bad animals. But get this, they're going through the motions. They're going through all the religious Christian motions that you and I do all the time. They're having family devotions. They're in God's word. They're teaching their, their kids. They come to church. They don't miss. They're in God's worship. They're doing Sunday school. They're fellowshipping. They're doing all the right things. But it's void of the power of God. It's void of It's a form of godliness, but denies its power. It's just not there. And the result is, to address that lack of void, they began supplementing worship with, let's make it easier for God's people. And um, let's let's do these things in the hope that somehow God will be placated. They've fallen into works righteousness. Incredible. Brothers and sisters, shockingly, that was their worship. It was about man, for man, driven by the likes and dislikes of man. As such, it fell way short of the majesty and honor of God and so created a weak and anemic people bound by the fear of man. And that was God's people in a nutshell. And yet, would you notice two through five? In fact, if you want, notice two through five and the fact that it says, I have loved you. And then go to chapter uh, four, verse six. It ends with, a promise of restoring the hearts of the children of God to their fathers and the whole pit. And so, brothers and sisters, this is bookended with this glorious message of grace and hope and encouragement. So, brothers and sisters, while the priests have fallen as they have here, there's no condemnation. Would you see that in this passage? No condemnation. None. God is is loving them. And because of his love for them, this is so huge, brothers and sisters. The book of Malachi has some strong things to say, but you have to understand it's said in the context of a loving God to his people whom he loves. No condemnation. No one's being cast out. This is God loving his people. In essence, brothers and sisters, it was because of this love that God allowed these priests to reap what they and their sin were sowing. And that reaping is what we're going to end with, the pastoral consequences. Would you notice, brothers and sisters, what happened when these priests fell into mechanistic Christianity, which had a negative impact on how they were worshiping God? Notice what happened with regards to um, uh, what they they sowed. Notice with me verse 10. 
And the first one is, is fruitlessness. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I'd rather not have any worship if it's, for t- if it's to placate me. I'm not pleased with you. Underline that word in your notes. Says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from you. Underline that word in your notes. Last week I gave you an introduction to this whole passage. Where we talked about this language in detail. So I know for most of you who are here, this is not new to you. You'll probably be able to articulate what I'm going to say here. But let me review briefly. This is the language of the covenant. If you don't understand this is the language of the covenant, you'll be tripped up. This is covenant language here. Pleasing, not pleasing. Acceptable, not acceptable. God is not an emotional being. We, that's the doctrine of his impassibility. Okay, God does not look at us and go, oh, goody, you made my day. Okay, that's not pleasing him. And, ooh, I'm upset at you. That's not displeasing him. God is impassable. Okay, so biblically speaking, we're talking about covenant language and a covenant description of something that's not pleased, we saw last time, is something that does not um, accompany with it the benefits that flow from Christ. Say it again. If a sacrifice is not pleasing, that means it will not be accompanied by the benefits that flow from Christ. Now you go, what are those? We talked about them last time. Listen to a couple of verses. Repeat. Galatians 5. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. So Paul is saying Galatians 5 to the group of believers, if they go back and receive circumcision, they're going to lose their salvation. Now, we don't say that. That's not what that text is saying. They're not going to lose their salvation. Well, then what does he mean by Christ will be of no benefit to you? Brothers and sisters, Beyond justification, forgiveness of sin, there are many blessings that come from Christ when you and I rely upon him. And we talk about, right? Hebrews 11, 6. Without faith, without reliance, without communion, seeking God, it's impossible to please him. Covenant language. You will not reap the benefits that flow from Christ if you are, Galatians 5, resurrecting works righteousness. Well, what are some of those benefits? Well, we've, we've identified them last time. Assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, perseverance there into, to the end. Those are benefits that flow from Christ. They're not guaranteed to every one of us. They come as you and I depend, as you and I rely. And when you and I depend and rely, covenantally speaking, that is pleasing to God. What does that mean? In the context of the covenant, it means God, that will then be accompanied by the by the various and sundry benefits that flow from Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Brothers and sisters, he's talking about trial, difficulties. Cling to God in your difficulties. Why? That we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. If you don't cling to God in the middle of your trial, you're not going to have grace to help in time of need. That means That doesn't mean God's upset at you. That doesn't mean God is getting even with you. That doesn't mean God's angry with you. It just means, again, these covenant blessings are not by merit. X that out of your minds. It's cause effect. Whatever you reap, you're going to sow. If you reap unto a a deep and abiding relationship with Christ, you will sow peace in your heart, assurance of God's love, joy in the Holy Ghost. I mean, many of those will flow. 
But if you and I don't, if you and I rebuild what was once destroyed and relate to God as if he's this being that needs to be placated, you will not be characterized by peace. You won't know the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension because you'll be quaking in your boots waiting for God to get you next. So we're talking about covenant language. James 4, 6, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud. He's not talking about non-believers, not about Christians. Opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you and I are relying upon, what's the definition of humility? It's not someone who thinks low thoughts. It's someone who doesn't think of himself at all, who is preoccupied with God. He gives grace to those people. What is that grace? The, the glorious benefits that flow from a saving relationship with Christ. Isaiah 58, 13, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable and shall honor it, desisting from your ways, seeking your own pleasures and uh, speaking your own word. Then, in other words, if you're clinging to me, that the Sabbath is what it's intended to be, refreshment in Christ, and you're being refreshed in Jesus Christ. You are encouraging each other to love and know and serve and trust the Lord. Then, you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and you will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, etc., etc., etc. We recognize there are benefits that flow from a saving a, a relationship with Jesus Christ that are not guaranteed unless you and I are relying upon God, seeking Him, seeking to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him, communing with Him. Brothers and sisters, that leads to glorious benefits. The language we're reading here are are, it is exactly that. It's covenant language. Let me read my, my notes. These de- thus are the reward, benefits, consequences of those who rely upon Christ. I use the word reward the same way Hebrews eleven six does. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. If you seek him, there's going to be incredible tangible blessings. Peace, patience, kindness. Right? Okay. Conversely, I haven't talked about this yet. When we speak of God cursing the ones he loves, as in verse 14, context, God loves these people. I loved you, and I'm cursing you. When we talk about God cursing the ones he loves, verse 14, we likewise take it as covenant language. In other words, let me use it this way. Please follow along with me. If your mind's wandering, come back right now. The word curse is not self-defining. It doesn't always mean the same thing. When God tells Abraham... He will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. When God curses the nations, it's a whole lot different from, or I'm sorry, when God blesses the nations, it's a whole lot different from when he blesses his people. God's blessing of you and me is salvific. It involves so many salvific elements to it. But God blessing the nations are not salvific. In fact, if you remember Joseph and Potiphar's house, God blessed that home because of Joseph. But what did that mean? Well, Potiphar's house became wealthy. That means that Potiphar became a Christian. So we recognize that blessing used for the, for the world and blessing for God's people are two different creatures. Cursing for the world typically is hell. We just sang about it in our dedication. Lord, if they don't come to a saving knowledge of you, curse them. That was the Psalm 32, whatever the Psalm was that we said. Um, wow. Okay, that's different from when we read in Scripture. Here, God cursing his people. What is that, brothers and sisters? Well, that's leanness of soul. It's the opposite of the blessing. Psalm 32, David's testimony. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Boy, God was blessing David there, wasn't he? No, he wasn't. He was cursing him. But not in the terms that we'd use for the world, in the context of the covenant. 
His body wasted away through his groaning all day long. Day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of, of summer. Pause and wonder. I mean, brothers and sisters, that is what we're talking about here. Covenant language. Not because of, 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 of merit base. Not because you've done this, God's going to get you. It's consequence. If you and I whore after the nations... Our bodies, if we, we want God. Lord, please punish me. Curse me in that sense. Don't, don't take away my salvation. Of course not. That would never happen. But Lord, indeed, I will say this. God, take my life before I ever commit adultery. Man, that's my prayer. For sure. What would that be? Right? Wow. Praise God he would protect me from that horrible sin. Okay, when we talk about covenant cursing, we're talking about leanness of soul. We're talking about Hosea 2, 6-7, where God, God thickens the hedge between us and the world. Where every time we try to get in the world, we, we sow bitterness and pricklies and thorns and difficulties. What is that? That's a covenant curse. But it's not damnation and it's not merit-based. It's consequential. It's the fatherly discipline of the Lord. So would you first and first and foremost notice, what is the first thing that happens because of this um, mechanical Christianity, mechanistic Christianity the priests have lapsed into? One, they're not, re- they're not reaping blessing. Their heart's cold. God seems distant. That's the idea. Their walk with God is shallow. They pray and it feels like their prayers are bouncing off the roof. And so if they're, they're cold. Notice the second one, verse 13a. Worship to them became a burden. Notice 13a. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. I heard a beautiful illustration on this passage. Every one of us carry around on a daily basis our body weight, Right? 160, 250, whatever your weight is. You wake up in the morning, the alarm goes off, you stand up effortlessly, walk to the shower, shower, go downstairs, walk down the stairs effortlessly, run to the bus stop effortlessly, maybe bike to work effortlessly, do all that you do, come home, mow the uh, lawn, all the while carrying your body weight, in my case, 215 pounds. I carry, every morning I squat 215 pounds on my back. And brothers and sisters, I would hardly even notice it. But what happens when you're sick? When you're ill, you can barely get out of bed. That 215 pounds, you stay like, whoa. Man, I didn't know I weighed so much, right? Wow, I weighed so much. Or better yet, I'm so tired. I can barely walk up the stairs. When you're ill, you feel the weight. Brothers and sisters, these priests were sick in their walk with God. We already saw it. They were taking God lightly. And because they were sick, guess what happened to the regulated worship of God? It became a burden to them. It became heavy. Unlike Korah, who wasn't ill, who said, brothers and sisters, let me tell you what, I love God. I love Him and I love His worship so much, Psalm 84. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now you might sound, that sounds bad. Oh, no, no, we're talking about, I'd rather come to church this Lord's Day than spend a free weekend at Bill Gates' Caribbean house. That's the tents of wickedness. Ease, prosperity, wealth. 
Cora's like, man, I'll tell you what, if I had to choose between not even worshiping God, standing at the door, handing out bulletins, and listening to the worship, man, I would choose that because I love the worship of God. Psalm 84 is all about the glory of God's worship. Brothers and sisters, how can you take the same worship service and one person go, wow, I love the Lord, I love his worship, and the other person, these priests going, oh, those sermons. I can't stand the hymns that we sing. I'm tired of the confession of faith. Good night. I'm bored with this. You know what's really sad today? You know what the priests of our days have done? By priests, I mean leaders. Rather than addressing the root cause, what they're doing is they're changing the forms of worship to make worship fun for those people who are bored with God's worship. So, you're tired of God's regulated worship, we'll get a worship service that's fun. And now you'll really like it. You can offer animals that are diseased. God will accept it just as much as the good ones. And you don't have to come. You don't have to do this. Brothers and sisters, would you notice, worship for them became a burden. And then lastly, would you notice with me, many amongst the people of God became defiled. Verse 14 is the key here. 6 through 13 is all about the priests. 14, we're here to talk about curse, so I won't reference that. Notice what 14, in the context, in chapter 2, we're going right back to the leadership. So where does 14 fit in there? It's talking about the rest of the people of God. I take it to understand it in this way. Because of the priests' sinfulness, because of their growing bored with Jesus Christ, and their, their resulting compromises, that spread like gangrene, and it, it infected the people of God. And thus many amongst the people of God became defiled because of their compromise. If the greatest joy a leader can have is hear my children walking in the truth, 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than this. As a parent, as a husband of his wife, parents to kids, people in the context of the church discipling people, if your greatest joy as a Christian is hearing your children walking in the truth, then I can think of no greater sadness than to think that because of my sin, my children are not walking in the truth. And that's what's going on here. Because of them, the swindler has a male, why is he a swindler? He has a male in his flock, he vows it to the Lord, and instead he brings one that's sickly. Exactly what the priests are doing. Wow. What a horrible result. Now, brothers and sisters, all this brings us down to the question of the hour. How to respond to this passage? What is the point of this passage for those living between the mountains, in the valley, right? Living between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for us? How does this translate? God, brothers and sisters, gave the answer at the beginning of this prophecy. Malachi 1, 2 through 4. As he declared his unconditional love for his people, I have loved you, says the Lord, to verse 2. And so the call for us, brothers and sisters, is to love God. What's the call of this entire epistle? Every week it's going to be so, brothers and sisters, love God. Now, let me, let me spend a minute or two, or more than that, two or three minutes, setting that up. It's a review from last week. Last week, we talked about this. Do you understand how you grow in your walk? Do you know how to grow in your walk with Jesus Christ? For most people today, if I asked you to do a survey in the church, Reformed churches, how do you grow in your walk with God? Many would say, read the Bible, pray, go to church, don't miss church, fellowship with God's people. Brothers and sisters, those do not grow you in your walk with God. Lord's uh, Supper. Those do not grow you in your walk with God. They don't. Okay? They're a means. Some of those are a means, a stated means. 
but they do not grow you in your walk. How do you grow in your walk? Biblically. I mentioned a lot of the verses last time. I'm going to reference a couple more. Psalm 26.3, I referenced this last time. David wrote, Thy loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. Do you know how to walk in God's truth? It's not reading more of the Bible. It's not going more to church. It's not praying more and doing more religious activities, hoping that God will be placated and enable you to grow. It's not doing religious functions. Now, does that mean we don't do them? Of course we do them. Of course we read God's Word. But you don't think that reading God's Word is what's going to grow you. What grows you is as God, as you read God's Word, it causes you to behold the Lord in His greatness, in His loving kindness, as David just said here. Thy loving kindness is before my eyes. And that's what makes me walk. You want to grow in your walk with Jesus Christ? Come to a greater understanding of the beauty and the glory and the greatness of God's holiness and His love and His mercy and kindness and compassions. That's how you grow. Romans 12, I urge your brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies. How do you present your bodies a living holy sacrifice? As you and I are familiar with the mercies of God. But if you're not familiar with the mercies of God and you present your body living holy sacrifice, what do you call that? Mechanistic Christianity. You're doing all the right things, reading all the right books, but you're not doing it as the one motivated of love and dependence and devotion upon God. It's just religious exercises. Nehemiah 8.10, when it came to God's call that he placed upon his people in building the city walls, remember what Nehemiah told the God's people, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Brothers and sisters, you want to grow in your walk, focus on approaching God in his word, in the sacrament, in prayer, to discover the joy of the Lord. And if you do that, you will grow. You will flourish in your walk. Those are the benefits that flow from Jesus Christ. Thus, if there's a secret to maturing our walks, I put that in quotes. Brothers and sisters, it's heeding the command to delight yourself in the Lord. To delight in the Lord. That's the fill in the blank, by the way. Delight in God. Delight in the Lord. That's how you grow in your walk. So I say this as we close, and that is why when we get sidetracked in our walks, thinking that the service of God and the pleasure of God is bound up in our religious acts of service. You hearing that? When you guys get sidetracked thinking our service, our religious activities are the basis for God's pleasure, one of the first things that is compromised is God's worship. Listen to the quote of Ian Duguid. This failure of true worship is engaged, to engage the heart and mind invariably flows out of a failure to recognize and remember God's love to us in the gospel. Worship cannot simply be commanded it has to be drawn out of us as we contemplate the gospel and our hearts are stirred afresh by God's amazing grace to us. It is this undeniable love of God and Jesus Christ that when properly understood, transforms our hearts from reluctant worship to joyful praises. Grasping the gospel turns us from haters of God into those whose chief delight is to glorify and enjoy Him. So brothers and sisters, allow today's passage to serve as a shibboleth in your walk with God. What's a shibboleth? As a diagnostic test. Are you bored with worship? Is your walk with God just boils down to doing the right things? Hoping that somewhere, some way, somehow God's going to bless you? Are you bored with Jesus Christ? 
Brothers and sisters, that is a sign and a symptom. Not necessarily that you're not doing the right things. Meaning be in the Word of God the whole bit. Many times you'll say, hey, if you like that, then be, be in the Word of God. I am in the Word of God. And Jesus is absent. Brothers and sisters, why are you in the Word of God? Why are you in the Word of God? Why are you coming to church to work? Why are you here to today? Why are you singing praises? Why are you doing that? Are you doing it to express love? Then guess what? Today's service was amazing. But if you're doing it, just hoping to go through the motions that someday God will bless you in return. Brothers and sisters, that's what the priests were doing. <laughs> and it doesn't work. So brothers and sisters, what must be the objective of our parenting, of our husband-wife relationship, of our walk with God, It's encouraging, stimulating our love for the Lord. Malachi 1, 2 through 5. That's the essence of the message of Malachi. May God give us the grace so to do. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word that is a light into our path and a lamp into our feet. The Lord demonstrates so graphically as it does here in Malachi the folly of empty religious activity, a form of godliness denying its power. And then, Lord, how it, when that's the case, how it, how it spins out of control to resemble something that is not what, what you initially called us to be. Father, I pray that you would bless your people covenantally this day. Give them joy in the Holy Ghost, peace of conscience, increase of grace, Give us perseverance, O Lord, as we gaze upon the beauty of our our Savior who has loved us and given us life. God, I pray that that would be the marching order of this body forever, for always. Lord, your love, your grace, your compassion of that which is the object of our study object of our prayer. So Lord, I pray, show us your glory. Open our eyes that we might behold you as we worship, as we read your word. And Lord, give us the grace, therefore, to to wage war against this inclination in our breast to seek to placate you by the things you've given us to feed our love. We pray this in Jesus' name.